The battle of Britain is about to begin. Welcome back to the Lead Pursuit Podcast. Tonight, we're going to be talking about another rule set that, well, I've stumbled across on the internet, which means apparently I haven't had enough real work to do. But tonight, we're going to talk to Matt Brackey. He's the designer of the Cold War Combat series, and this first installment is Cold War Combat ACM. Matt, how are you doing tonight? I'm good, thanks, Doug. How are you doing? Doing great. It's good to have you on the program. So I, I laugh. Uh, I I always think that I have the pulse of what's going on in the wargaming community, and then out of the blue, I'm stumbling either through Facebook or somewhere else, and I go, ooh, that's a really cool rule set. How did I not know that was out there? So I stumbled across Cold War ACM, uh, took a look at some of the files you had out there publicly, and then uh, found it's, it's a really cool way to have a, a 1980s Cold War era kind of game that is simplified. It isn't super complex. It isn't like a lot of the Hex Encounter stuff I grew up with. So tell me a little bit about yourself as a gamer and how you ended up uh, as a game designer. Yeah, well, um, I played uh, many, many different types of games, um, not all of them air combat games. And um, I sort of was always looking for that holy grail of, you know, um, the game that sort of fit, you know, and, and didn't have all these annoying things that I didn't like about other games. And... Um, I just sort of had been coming up with some ideas and started writing it down and um, then one day I was like, you know, why don't I just make it? You know, if you build it, they will come. Um, yeah. 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 <laughs> That's how all of us get suckered into this designing a game piece here. Yeah. You know? yeah. I'd had, um, I had a bit of um, a sort of segue into doing some playtesting for some other miniature games um, and from there I sort of went, well you know, maybe I should actually start writing down these ideas because everyone who I sort of talked to about them said, hey, that sounds really cool. But, uh, yeah, just well, do it. So the, the, the first page uh, out of the rule book alludes to an entire series. So <laughs> it you call it Cold War Combat, and then this one is ACM for Air Combat Maneuvering. But tell us a little bit about the, your desires and your goals for the whole series uh, of the Cold War series games. Yeah, well, one of the things that when I was miniature gaming, you know, whether it's playing things like uh, bolt action, for instance, and, and going, okay, well, it would be cool if we had an airstrike or artillery coming in or something like that. I was sort of going, what if you actually could create a game where it's just one big ecosystem and you can actually plug everything in um, so that you can have tanks, you can have control, you can have ships, you can have planes. Um, and the scale was limited just by how big do you want to make your table. So... That's where I sort of went, where would you start with that? And I thought, you have to start with the jets, because they have the biggest movement range, you know, they have, um, they travel at such speed and maneuverability that everything else moves quite slowly in comparison. A lot of games that focus more on the squad level stuff, planes just fly in from one side of the board and fly out the other side, you know, at the end of the turn. So um, that's why I thought, if you can do the dogfighting right and make it fun and engaging, 
then everything else is quite easy to build out from there and flesh out from there. So it's sort of, um, it is an aircraft game at its heart, but there is um, future opportunities to include all sorts of other warfare around that as well. Well, that was uh, the funny part, reading through the, the kind of commentary you'd put there in the beginning. It's, it resonated with me for playing things like Flames of War, Bolt Action, and, and times when you spend a lot of time, effort, money painting up an airplane model just for it to, even in some of the games, not even be on the table, really. It just, you know, kind yeah. of influenced the game from off board. Uh, and that has always frustrated me. So the, the nice thing is uh, at least playing in the scales I have of, you know, 1 200th, 1 285th, um, it's a compromise scale. You can still get, you know, armor and infantry and things in those scales that uh, that that you feel like you could combine all those games. So that that will be cool to yes. see where you go with that. I'm I'm really interested because I've I've looked at a couple different games that that do that, um, and it's always a tall order. You know, it's it's always tough to to keep the scale and the feel for each one of them. Uh, but I think I think if you if you want to have a game that's not just aviation in a vacuum, you know, by itself. Uh, then that then that makes it a lot more enjoyable. Absolutely, and when we look at aviation, you know, operations around the world, um, you know, a very small amount is just purely, you know, air to air operations. Oh yeah. Um, you know, so that's where I sort of went. The game itself, that's the starting point, but there is a whole bunch more that we can do beyond that. Don't worry, I I won't pick up. Cold War combat, naval war, or whatever you're going to call it. I'll skip that one. <laughs> but I'm, I'm really curious to see how the rest of it works out. So that, that'll be neat. I know, I know it'll take some time. I'm, you know, I'll manage expectations for the, for the listeners out there. You know, this is the, you, you dipping your toes in in a lot of ways with this first one. Well, one other thing is by having this idea right from the outset and having the scope um, is that everything I'm designing is with the intention that it can be built on and have these other elements included and they fit in with it rather than creating a game that people go hey this is cool we want to do um air to ground warfare how do you make that work and then having to go back and rewrite the original game to significantly change everything to make it work uh yeah, you know i absolutely. already have the rules and um processes sort of all set out for how those things are going to work to make sure that the original game concept is compatible with them so. Right. Well, and, and that's huge. You and I were talking before the, the show started. Uh, it's funny for me, you know, playing Blood Red Skies in a game that things are continually bolted onto, that it takes what is a, a very simple tactical choice core game for, for World War II air combat, then bolts on air to ground, bolts on uh, terrain, bolts on, you know, now jets, and, you know, we're even playing with missiles in some of the games. Uh, it, it does make compromise. If you haven't built it in from the beginning, you're going to either run up against rules you've already written or, or kind of just the laws of the game that you end up having to bend. Absolutely. And one of the other things is also ending up with, um, you know, power creep in games as well, where you sort of uh, get um, games that suddenly introduce new mechanics halfway through when they've already introduced other units. Uh, and then you either have to sort of go back and change those units that you've already released um, or you're then ending up with sort of this well this unit's way better than this one is over here so nobody should bother buying or playing this one anymore because it you know so yeah yeah the, the continual argument we have about about multi-engine versus jets versus single engine fighters and in, in blood red skies that same that same creep is in there yeah so having that roadmap of hey this is all of the things that um, could potentially be and 
how do we make sure that we progress everything within that arena um, so that it is part of this one ecosystem is really at the core of this game. Well, cool. Well, so let's talk a little bit about things that influenced you, because obviously uh, none of it's done in a vacuum. Uh, you and I talked, you've played Blood Red Skies, I know you've played some other games that are out there. What what were some of the things, uh, for good or for ill, that that when you sat down and said, all right, I'm doing this myself, I either, I don't want to make this one glaring error that I've run across in other games, or, hey, here's something that consistently has worked well in either this one designer's game or this one designer's series of, of games. I want to make sure I, I mimic that. What were some of those? Yeah, well, there's been uh, quite a lot of different influences. I mean, I've played everything from Age of Sail warship games, um, you know, squad-based games, um, you know, with infantry. Um, I've played aviation games like Blood Red Skies as well. I've uh, played, you know, space combat like a bit of X-Wing and that sort of stuff as well. So there wasn't any one particular game that I sort of went, ooh, I'm going to take part of this and, and bring it in. Um, but there were a few things that I sort of noticed, um, and one of them was um, the ability for the game to be picked up by beginners, people who weren't necessarily really hardcore aviation fans. And so I thought the basic model has to be quite streamlined, um, because I've got a lot of friends who are really passionate about war games and like to get stuff into nitty gritty details, but also I've got a lot who like to come over and play a war game, but they don't have time to spend three hours just learning how to play. They want something that I can pick up, teach them in 10, 20 minutes. We can have a game, and then if they like it and come back, we can build some more rules in the next time we play. So that's sort of um, where the idea of having the base rule set and the advanced rules came from. A game that's quick to sort of learn and teach the the, the core concept, then they'll be able to build on it. Um, the other thing was the idea of fairness. Um, one thing that I sort of struggled with with some other games is where you have this sort of I go, then you go mentality. And <laughs> right. You get, you get to sort of this uh, the situation where you start trying to build alpha strikes and that sort of stuff up. Right. Um, and when you look at air combat and dogfighting, you know, it is sort of a, um, a very reactive, well, this happens, so then I'm going to do this, and then this is going to come next so it needed to be something that would alternate quite fluidly between the players um, and that's why I decided to go with a draw activation draw from a bag so and then giving the players the autonomy to sort of choose what they want to do with that activation right. to best sort of right. represent yeah well and I thought that was good because there's there's so many times that uh, I think games in general about air combat, they think it has to be simultaneous, so it has to be pre-plotted or pre-planned, or or things that make just the the execution of the game difficult. Yet by going to an activation shit, at least you're allowing there to be a, a chance of alternating action, uh, and so that you can react to things and and work through it that way. So I'll be curious to see. Hopefully, I'll play either next week or, or the following week and see uh, see how that works out because I am not a fan especially in aviation of you go, I go kind of games or of, of pre-plotted because the, if it's all pre-plotted, more than once I've seen people fly right past each other and <laughs> totally miss opportunities that in the real world people would have reacted to and, and would have seen. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, and it sort of, it puts you, rather than being in the role of, okay, I am this particular pilot and I'm limited by these sort of decisions, it sort of puts you in that sort of more of a tactical commander sort of perspective of, 
okay, I've got these guys who need to react, but also this guy over here, if I don't move him first, he's going to get jumped by that MIG and he's in a bad spot. So, yeah, so it gives more interesting tactical level gameplay being able to make those choices rather than sort of being told you have to move this person first. Right. And well, and I think the other nice thing is it is the game allows you to let pilots do what pilots do best and you're not micromanaging individual energy states at bank angles and, and things like that, that a lot of times while it does provide at least a feel of some realism and some, some action to it, uh, oftentimes you end up doing more tracking and bookkeeping than actually feeling like you're, you're flying the airplane. So, Yeah, and, and the, the phrase one of the alpha testers sort of used was top gun in a box you know it does right. feel like you're turning and burning do you, do you, do you and, go take off your shirt and go play volleyball is that no not that top gun in no box. okay no oh, the flying scenes at a top gun okay i just want to make no, sure that, that 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 might be a dlc expansion if there's yeah, enough demand exactly. for it but um, that's that's not part of the roadmap at this point um, exactly oh. but it's that idea of that it should be fun it should be fast-paced engaging um and one of the things that we 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 did that I was very careful about was I started with the gun mechanics. I started right. with the very close dogfighting mechanics because if you get a game where sure you close on each other, you shoot all your missiles, you still got planes left, they get into a merge, and then you spend two hours tracking around in circles trying to shoot at each other, that's not fun. So right. Right. It had well, that, to that be. was our Blood Red Skies game last night. It was a it was an intro game, and nobody wanted to plant the flag, so it was people in a Luffberry chasing each other for literally two hours, I think. <laughs> yeah, and that's where we sort of had, went, do these core mechanics work really well? Are they fast to play? Are they fun? And the feedback from the alpha testers that we had was, yes, they really enjoyed the close the close combat part of it. So then it was a case of, okay, well, now it's quite straightforward to us to now make it a bit bigger and look at, the missile side of the game and that just became more of a balancing of how exactly do we make that work so that it feels right so so as you went through the rules and you built out some of the different scales and ranges and times and maneuverability did you find yourself fighting being super realistic and super accurate versus just something that was easy to understand because you know for for the people who haven't seen the actual bases that we've talked about uh the base of the aircraft in this game literally has arcs that are your movement arcs you know drawn on there and and that that then is can be color coded to match up with your throttle so at any point in the game all you have to do is look down and go oh i'm in the green speed band i can turn up to all the green arcs um the, you know how how did all that kind of coalesce into part of the game yeah, that was, it was quite, it was one of those things that just came to me one day, um, and I'd been thinking for a while about uh, how to be able to coordinate that movement, and, and aircraft are a bit hard like that, that the faster they go, that does affect their maneuverability, and so I came up with the idea of us having, that each plane has their own plane card, and it has a throttle up the side, and that the throttle, I could break it into coloured segments, from sort of, you know, green to being low speed, quite maneuverable, yellow you sort of lose a bit of maneuverability orange is starting to get quite restricted and then red you're really struggling to turn because you're just going so darn fast uh and then going well if i could make a circular base with sort of these fan shaped wedges that were color coded then that means that you could just determine how much you rotate your circular base by depending on what throttle quadrant and what it lets us to do is is map each aircraft type by giving them different throttle 
quadrants. So right. aircraft right. that do have a better turning ability, we can give them more speed in the green zone. You know, aircraft that are uh, a bit more notorious for flying in a straight line, we can <laughs> give them more of a red zone for them. <laughs> more, more orange and red, you know, to. Um, to make it more challenging to actually be able to turn those. So what you're saying is, is the F-104 is not going to have anything other than orange and red. <laughs> it won't have a green zone. <laughs> it's, it's, it would have a very, very small green zone if yeah. it did have one. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, and, and that's something that, uh, you know, we were talking before the show about it. I've tried to work with some rule sets and to, and to build out a way to, to model turn rate, turn radius. Cause those are concepts that as you, as you read the accounts, as you, you know, see how, combat aviation is done, especially with jet aircraft, those, those independent variables are what make the airplane so different. And that at any point in time, you know, for any energy state, they may have 500 or even a thousand foot difference in turn radius, and their rate could be five to 10 seconds degrees per second different. So all of a sudden, it's a huge advantage, and you want to be able to model that. So I was, I was pretty excited to see that on the card that there was, there was an interaction between your degrees of turn and your speed, because a lot of the games just don't have that. You know, you look at uh, check your six and it's only for specific maneuvers. And, you know, it's, it's very regimented how you make those turns at various speeds. Uh, whereas this one kind of leaves it up to you and says, okay, here's what your max turn is, but here's the speed band you're in. So, Yeah, absolutely. And that came back, came back to that trying to make something which is um, friendly enough for anybody to right. and play and it's sort of you know if you were comparing it to, to flight simulations you know it's it's um not exactly a tom clancy's hawks uh, kind of you right. know simplicity um <laughs> although if you were playing just the bare basic beginner rule set then you're probably pretty close to being at a pick up and fly just like that but it's not like a, a dcs or you know a falcon right. level of complexity either it's sort of more like the old uh, james u.s navy fighters kind of you know get in have a good time it's air right. warfare it's blowing up people it's you know it's doing the stuff that we all enjoy and if you want to take it to a little bit more nitty-gritty here are a whole bunch of advanced rules you can put in to drill down and and model some of those things uh in a way that lets them be part of the narrative in the game even right. though they're not going to be mathematically necessarily, you know, exact. Yeah, and I think for at least most of the people that that I play war games with, nobody really wants to go to that level because you just lose so much of the fun factor to what you're doing. That sure, it may be hyper accurate, but it it takes too long. It it isn't, uh, you know, just it isn't what people want to do for a night of drinking beer and playing war games. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And like I said, if if it's not fun then why do it? And that's yeah. sort of the core mentality behind the whole game is that if it was starting to detract from the game being enjoyable to play, then that's where I sort of made the decision not to go down that path to rein it back in a bit and get back to the core tenant of you've got to be having fun moving these aircraft around and turning them and, you know, engaging. Right. Well, so let's talk a little bit about the the bases and the models and the concepts there. So, uh, you obviously have a Patreon site that you're introducing everything through, and you've introduced a few aircraft models. Uh, you know, obviously, uh, for Patreon backers, they're in there and they're getting the rules, they're participating in, you know, alpha series uh, rule builds and now into kind of a beta test. Uh, tell us just a little bit about why 3D printing. Why, why did you say, you know what, I don't feel like I want to go uh, spin cast a bunch of models and try to sell those on the internet. I want to build the game around releasing STLs for the base and STLs for the fighters. Well, it really came down to, as a gamer, seeing the rise of 3D printing and the sort of availability of 
um, being able to print things at home, uh, you know, for other war games. And I'd had this rule set already that I'd been tinkering, you know, in my head and for a year or so at least. And I sort of went, well, you know, if I create this war game, I could 3D print these things myself and have a war game that I could play at home. And then I sort of went, well, if I can 3D print it and play it, why can't other people 3D print it and play it as well? Why can't I share it with other people who might also enjoy this game? And that got me realizing, because I'm all the way down in New Zealand on the other side of the world, you know, <laughs> getting miniature boxes shipped here is a very expensive process quite often. And I sort of went, well, thinking about globalization and technology is to, I don't have to necessarily then ship things all around the world if there's an opportunity for you to get it from somebody local to you. Um, and I thought, what's the important thing here? Is the important thing coming up with a great game and a great rule set? Or is it coming up with a nicely packaged box of miniatures? And I thought, well, the rule sets is where it's got to start. Because if you don't have a good rule set, it doesn't matter how good your miniatures are. You know, and if uh, the yeah. game becomes really popular and people who then say, hey, we'd love to buy a printed version of the rule book or a box of the, the, the miniatures, you know, really nice um, cast versions of the miniatures, maybe that's a possibility in the future. But for now, it was sort of this is a good starting point. Yeah, well, and and I laugh. The some of my friends I've worked with in Malaysia for their game, they have three D printed miniatures, but that are actually in retail packaging and everything for their game, simply because it was the easiest, most cost effective way to generate commercial product. You know, if they went out and had to had to get things cast and done that way, it would just cost too much money, too much of an outlay, uh, and it was really easy for them to say, you know what, we'll we'll three D design all the miniatures for our game. Uh, print them, have them vacuum packed, and, <laughs> and do it that way too. So there's there's a lot of flexibility there, and I think I think it's at least for me as as I won't really call myself a game reviewer because I'm I'm not that dedicated to it, but as someone who who at least runs a podcast talking about Arrow War games, it's it's super liberating to see somebody say, "Hey, we're going to do this built around you printing the models and you printing the bases, and I'm going to spend my time and effort on on the rules." Yeah, and because at the end of the day, you know, 3D printers are becoming so mainstream now. You know, we've got commercial services that 3D print stuff and then ship it to your door. Most people know somebody who has a 3D printer or that there are libraries or spaces in most towns where you can go and get something 3D printed. Um, you know, admittedly, the best results are from resin 3D printing, which is still a little bit rarer at this point. But I can see within a few more years, it's going to be more and more common to be getting high quality 3D printing easily from all sorts of places and you know in your local community so that's where I sort of feel the potential um, is in terms of this type of game development yeah I think I think it's funny to see how some of my friends have evolved and now they have both FDM and resin printers and they're printing terrain for for all their 28 mil games on their FDM printer and printing the miniatures uh, for a lot of stuff on the resin and I think I think it's just going to get more available and you know more more readily a part of everyone's everyday existence uh, to be able to do those kind of things with with 3D printing services. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I think it's a good way to go. So let's let's talk a little bit about um, using Patreon. So that that's a little different for what a lot of us have seen for war games. We're used to Kickstarter. We're used to retail releases. Uh, used to things like that. But you said, nope, uh, you can do this. You can do it as a subscription. You can buy the game. You can play the game. Uh, you can go away and I can never see you again. <laughs> you know, you, you, had a, you have a couple different ways of doing it. Um, how has that worked out so far? Have you, have you built a community of people that are, that are dedicated to playing the game and are, and are interested in, in seeing what the new releases are? Or how has it all worked out? Yeah, it's, it's a small group at the moment. And I guess what, what it sort of came to was that um, 
again, it comes back to traditional game publishing and that I was getting a bit frustrated and there's, you know, say a few game publishers in particular, but I'm not going to name names, where you end up having to go out and buy a new rulebook every year because they keep doing an update. And I sort of went, what if you just said, you know, when you buy the product, you own the product, and if I have to make updates to that version of the rulebook, then that's included in it. You just go and re-download the new version. And so what I sort of went was, um, what was a way for me to be able to engage with a number of people to get a little bit of funding coming in to cover the cost of things like the 3D modeling and the resin and that sort of stuff for the prototyping and to be able to have them to easily download the product and test it out and play it and it's sort of that's where the Patreon really sort of fit that niche that uh, you know being able to have people come in at a low price point where they just have access to everything that's in development at the moment and as I had new content then they get to download that and test that and in the long run, we might move towards more of a, a web store where you can purchase the specific products that you want and not the products that you don't want, because I don't want to force people into having to buy, you know, or pay for things that they don't want. Right. Um, right. Yeah, so the, the core idea was that the game will release in a group of modules. So you'll have the base ACM game, and then there's other, the same modules like the ground strike um, rules that would come on as a separate expansion to plug into it. Um, but on top of that, there'd be aircraft where the community has a demand for it and they all say, hey, we want this aircraft. Then I would develop that as a standalone DLC, you know, to be able to say, well, okay, if you want that, then, you know, this is the cost. You get the plane model, you get the plane card, you get the rules that go associated with it if they're not already merged into the main rulebook. There you go. Download, have fun, you know. Yeah, I think that's a good way, especially for people who who know there's only a single faction they want to play or just a single era they want to play and they're only going to get, you know, two or three or four models um, and, and they want to be able to dip their toes in and not have to, you know, buy an entire library of things that they're, that they're not going to use. So I think it's pretty cool. I think it's a, a yeah. neat way for you to do it. So at the moment, the Patreon sort of, you know, people who want to come on the journey with me who are interested in, in supporting, you know, for a small amount a month that that they know that they're getting to download and play the latest version of this, they're on the cutting edge that everything they put out there, you know, is pretty um, now that we're into the, the closed beta, it's sort of as it's being developed, then they're getting to see it um, and be part of that journey to help this game grow and develop, so. Well, tell us a little bit about the feedback from uh, from the closed beta and from just the things that you've been working through recently, you know, what, what have has there been anything that's been a surprise to you as a designer that you're like, I thought that was obvious. I thought that rule worked perfectly. How did you guys manage to break it? <laughs> well, the, the closed beta only launched yesterday. So um, this is sort of the first look at the uh, the rules that a lot of people are getting. Um, from the alpha testing that we did, though, yeah, a lot of it was um, very intuitive. They sort of found the, the core rule set, which is really good because that's what I wanted was something that was going to be um, easy to pick up. Um, there's sort of a, a few mechanics in there that are a little bit quirky. Um, you may have seen that there's a, a G mechanic in there. Yeah, yeah, um, I like that. That was that 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 was one, and we'll we'll talk through it here in a second. But that was one that I looked. At, I go, I like that. I'm like, I'm not sure how it's going to work out for me. It might not work out well for me. I might <laughs> I might yeah. constantly have a lot of negative modifiers to my die rolls, but we'll see. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and um, so it's sort of. Uh, and the the advanced rules for people who they weren't necessarily aviation buffs being sort of having them wrap their head around and go, oh, why does that do that? Um, but that's why they're advanced rules. Um, and, you know, being able to actually support players who 
uh, are coming into the game to understand a little bit of the theory behind right. those aviation principles. Um, well, and, and that's then. that's the nice thing about your writing style is is rather than like a lot of rules that I read, there's designer's notes at the end. Uh, reading through this iteration of the rules, I get the feeling like I get the designer commentary <laughs> in the middle of a lot of it, which is good, at least for me. Uh, maybe that's just because I'm looking at it as a as an outsider saying, okay, I, I need to understand these rules so I can do an interview. Um, but it's it's much more of a conversational tone, I found, which, which yeah. really, really at least helped me because I think one of my hurdles, even looking at uh, games like Missile Threat or some of the other ones I've picked up recently, is digging through the rules and not understanding some of the whys. And I go, yeah. I, you know, well, you, you get to the end of it and you realize, okay, now that I've seen all the terms or all the ways of maneuvering or all the actions, okay, now I understand why it's done that way. But as I'm reading it and going through those five pages in someone else's rule book, um, sometimes that's a little difficult. So I, I, I definitely like the tone, <laughs> the way you wrote, oh, I, I'm you wrote glad a lot to hear of that. that. So. Yeah, yeah. I did try to make it as sort of clear as possible and to be um, as inclusive as possible in terms of helping people to understand what the purpose of this mechanic was to, you know, well, yeah, why so, it did it yeah. this way. So let's talk about one of those right now, the, the G mechanic, which is an interesting way that, as you say, allows you to, to balance some of the mental and physical strain of, of flying the airplane with an ability to, to do, to be better at something. So um, for the, the people who haven't looked at the rules, really what it does, you can basically take on G tokens and have a, a bonus to the whatever role you're making at that point, but then every other time you're forced to make a roll, that's now a negative modifier against you until you get rid of that stress, get rid of that G uh, token uh, in a follow-on turn. How, how did yeah. you stumble across that as a as an idea? Well, it started with just the planes flying around, and and it sort of went well. Okay, this is all well and good; it functionally works, but it's missing something. It's missing that sort of fighter pilot spirit of pushing the boundaries and you know pushing the aircraft right to the edge because um, at the end of the day we sort of had rules for rookie pilots versus ace pilots but even then it didn't feel really sort of fluid enough and so what I thought was we really need some sort of a, a push your luck mechanic in here to show the way that in this sort of combat situation pilots would push their machines to the edge and potentially beyond uh, for an opportunity but if you put yourself in that situation, you could actually be setting yourself up for a high-risk situation as well. If you're pulling a really high G turn, you just can't give any more at that point. You know, and if somebody was to, uh, you know, launch a missile at you at the time, you're going to have a pretty tough time getting out of that situation. Right. And that's where the idea sort of came to be able to voluntarily take on these G tokens to improve your odds of doing something. So saying, hey, I'm really focusing on this, or I'm really putting this effort in above and beyond my normal capabilities but the trade-off is that then you are under strain and if you then have an unexpected thing you have to react to like say getting shot at it's going to make it much harder for you to effectively deal yeah. with that well, well i think it's it's an interesting balance because you know in my opinion a lot of aerial war games don't have a, a tactical depth and an ability to as we would say in fighter aviation, sell the farm, you know, an ability to say, I'm going to make either an energy excursion or continue a high G maneuver or whatever, 
because I need to finish the fight now. I, I need to get that one shot. I need to get that. I need to get in that perfect position um, for to uh, to be behind the bandit. Uh, and you still kept it abstract because, yeah. as you allude to in the rules, it may not necessarily be that you're pulling harder. It may be that you're focusing more. You're you're focusing all your attention on getting your pipper on this one bandit. So inherently, anyone else who might shoot at you and make you defend, you're not paying attention to them. You're now more at a risk. So I, I thought it was a good compromise. Yeah, and it's not just the dice rolls as well. It's it's being able to break some of the other game mechanics temporarily as well. Like you said about pulling harder to get your nose on the bandit. So one of the things you can do is you can take a G to be able to turn a color section more than yeah. you're supposed to at your current speed. I, I saw that one. I'm like, so, I'm not sure how this is going to work out. I'm, I'm going to see if I can break this part of the rules. Yeah. So and And that's exactly the intended outcome is that yes you might be pulling a really high g turn to get your nose on that target but pulling that high g turn you're not going to be a really accurate shot and that's represented right. in the fact that your attack roll then which follows your turn is going to be that much harder because of you know but which would you rather have no attack roll because your nose isn't pointed Correct. at the yeah. bandit or have an attack roll chance but it'd be more difficult. Well, and, and that's where I really want to play through it because it's it's hard for me to just read the rules and understand the follow-on effects throughout other turns. And I know in, in the obviously in the alpha uh, phase, you guys have, have walked through that. But I'm really curious to see between a couple different players, uh, hopefully over the next couple of days, what happens is people load up G tokens into people, in a sense, almost like the leader series, load up stress too early and then realize now they're in a bucket they can't get themselves out of. Mm. <laughs> and so yeah. um, I, I think it'll be interesting to try and see how the, how the mechanic works. It should be pretty yeah. interesting. And one of the things is, um, you know, at the beginning of each activation, then you can do a skill test roll to determine if right. you get to drop some of that G off. Everybody will get to drop at least one G token around. But if you make your skill test, then you get to drop off some more. And aces, because they're more used to high G and right. the environment, they get to drop all their G if they're successful in that yeah, skill test. I, I saw which, that. <laughs> which really makes an ace pilot very difficult to go up against because you know, you're both flying around, you're both taking some G to, you know, in opportune moments to try and get the edge on each other. And then all of a sudden, the beginning of his next activation, he makes that pilot skill test, drops all of his G, and he's back to a clean skate, a slate where you right. might still have one or two tokens that you haven't got rid of yet. And all of a sudden, he does a, a, a turn, you know, a sharp turn, and suddenly he's got guns on you. And there's nothing you can do because you're already <laughs> stressed out. And that's where the ace pilots really sort of shone through in the, the alpha testing as being, yeah, these guys are good. Well, and, and you want that. I think sometimes in games, there's too much of an even grade going from your rookie pilots to your ace pilots and that everybody's just slightly better than everybody else. And by the time you yep. get to an ace, you don't feel like you truly have somebody who is a water walker, is a is someone that, that is head and shoulders above everyone else out there on the battlefield. Yeah. And so just to, you know, give... Um, listeners uh, an overview i guess is the plane card has four stats on it and those stats determine how many dice you roll it's the pilot skill level that determines what you what you need to roll on those dice to be successful exactly yeah and that was an interesting change i've seen from a lot of games is that your pilot skill was was your success threshold but each aircraft de determined how many dice and what the what the baseline percentage in that was obviously with that going up then every time his pilot skill goes up yeah, and because, you know, you could put a rookie in an F-14 and you could put an ace in a Skyhawk and have the two face off against each other. Right. Um, <laughs> and you go, the Tomcat is a far superior dogfighting aircraft, but in the right hands, the Skyhawk could still prove a challenge. 
Yeah. You know, yeah. and this is really what it's sort of all about is differentiating the two of them, so that one is what is the capabilities of the machine, and the other one is what is the capabilities of the the pilot, the guy flying it, and how far can he push that machine. Right. Right. And I think the what at least I saw by assigning the number of dice to the airplane and the the success threshold to the pilot is you really give credence to that it's both the, the man in the box and the box that get a vote. And that at the end of the day, if you have a truly substandard airplane, yes, you're a good pilot. Yes, it's a very low threshold of success, but you may only have one die that you're rolling for that defense or for, or for taking that shot. So um, yeah, absolutely. You know, choose wisely. <laughs> yeah, and that's the thing is that, you know, the worse aircraft you're in, the better your skill level needs to be if you're going to be competitive with it. So. Yeah, yeah. No, I think that'll be interesting. And, and you know, obviously, I've only seen a little bit of this. Uh, I've only, you know, seen uh, just what you what you sent us. Uh, it, it seems pretty cool. I'll be excited to see how the aircraft kind of build out over time and how how you keep a feel for uh, for each of them to be unique, each of them to have strengths and weaknesses. Because a, a lot of games I end up playing these days, after a while, the aircraft either fall into one or two categories and they all start kind of feeling like, minor variations on a theme they might change the name of the weapon or change the the range it shoots at but you know all the aircraft start really starting to feel pretty similar at, at some point yeah and that's one of the things i guess i did right from the get-go was i did a bit of meta-analysis around aircraft um and you know you do find though that um there are a lot of similarities you know you look at for instance um air-to-air infrared missiles you know you look at the sidewinder and then on the russian side you've got the atoll uh, yeah, so, pretty so much identical. Some, you know, they are, there are cases where they are very, very similar. Um, you know, when you're looking at aircraft weapons in terms of their guns, you know, you've got your 20mm Vulcan cannon on the American side, um, you know, but then you've got Russian aircraft that got cannons as well. So it's sort of, yeah, there's, there is going to be areas where there will be similarities. Um, but what I've tried to do is to base some of the... Uh, stats I guess in factual information so one of the very first things I did was I sort of went out and looked at top speed of fighter aircraft and went well okay if we look at the the MiG-25 and the MiG-31 and how ridiculously fast they are that's my upper limit you know in terms of well okay if I want to bring those aircraft onto the tabletop what is the biggest movement range that I can put on the tabletop and still have those aircraft be part of the game and then work down from there in terms of, yes, like I said, uh, with the design of the game, starting with aircraft, because of the fact that they have such a a big speed and range, you know, and variability there. So I think you'll, you'll find, hopefully, that we manage to capture the flavor of each aircraft, even if right. we don't necessarily manage to capture the every single intricacy of that aircraft. Um, the other thing we have is obviously special rules. So it's the ability that we have a playing card and then we can put a perk that goes with that aircraft. So um, with the the F4 um, that's part of our beta test, it's got weapons officer. So meaning that if the, the rear and the back seat is lock someone up, you can fire a missile straight away um, as essentially a free action. Um, you meant or, to say the genius in the back seat. That's what. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> no. yeah. Um, you know, or, no, that, or and I think that's cool because there's there's a lot of games that are afraid to give unique traits to to aircraft because they want everything to be fairly statistical in how they work. Um, yet I think that was one of the successes that we enjoyed with Blood Red Skies is at least you had traits for airplanes, so you could in your mind you could you wrap your 
brain around how the, it was supposed to fly in the game. And and when yeah. you do that, it really it gives a little bit more theatrical flair, I guess, for lack of a better term, to to how the airplanes are supposed to behave. Yeah, it's again, it's about capturing that flavor of that aircraft, you know. So if you have um, some aircraft that really are quite small, for instance, you know, they got the keyword small on them. It means when you're trying to shoot them with a gun attack, they get an extra dice to their evade pool just against gun attacks, just right. to represent the difficulty of hitting a target that is a lot smaller than some of these other jets. Yeah, no, that, that's cool because there's, there's, I think, a lack of understanding of how difficult air-to-air gunnery is. And it's probably because we've all watched Baba Black Sheep and <laughs> in Black Sheep Squad and everybody gets, you know, the, the bad guys get shot down immediately. Um, but there's, there's a lot of factors that go into uh, being able to actually su- successfully employ aircraft cannons. Uh, and it's, I, th- I think, if I had to put it in my perceptions, it's never as easy as any of the games make it. You know, there's there's a lot more people getting shot with aircraft cannons in these, you know, aviation games and the aerial warfare games than probably would have really happened in, in some of the situations. Yeah, absolutely. And I guess that's where um, things like the G mechanics sort of come in again, is that if you're getting shot at by somebody, yes, you can pull a very high G evasive, you know, maneuver to try and improve your odds of dodging that attack. But then the second time you get shot, you're not yeah. going to be well, able to, you know... And that's the that's the discussion we always had about the MiG-29 and its amazing maneuverability. And you would see them do a Cobra maneuver and we would uh, tell people, yes, that that's a pretty amazing maneuver and it's going to work once. And then after you've done that, <laughs> you are no longer have the speed, the maneuverability or whatever to do a follow-on maneuver. Um, pretty much, you have, yep. Yeah, you've sold everything for that one maneuver. So it better work. You better defeat the shot and get behind the guy um, because now you, you're not going to do another one back-to-back with that. Unless you're, unless you're an SU-27 that has more thrust than, uh, than anyone knows what to do with and he'll just continue doing high pitch-outs and everything like that. So yeah, that'll be good. So what is your, your kind of end state uh, years wise, I mean, you call it obviously Cold War series. Um, what what years are you bracketing your start to your end for aircraft and, and aircraft types? Well, one of the things about the game mechanics making it uh, was that I realized that it was quite flexible in terms of what you could include. Um, so it was sort of, I guess, the end state is more limited by availability of data than. Um, any particular yeah, that, hard limit. Um, yeah, that's, that's exactly the situation I'm in, that there's there's large gaps in the uh, useful flight data for some of these aircraft out there. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, sort of, I'd say, you know, sort of late 80s, early 90s is probably where it's going to sort of um, be like, well, we're pushing the point now where it's, it's hard to sort of get some good comparative data with aircraft that are really still in service. Um, but that's not to say it has to be a hard limit there. Uh, it, again, it really depends on the demand of, of people playing the game. You know, if I have get a lot of people on, on Patreon, you know, I've got quite a few people are saying, hey, we want to see stuff from the Falkland, uh, you know, and, and go and, you know, bring in some Harriers and, and some Mirages. Um, then that could be an area that we'll go and develop into, you know, sooner rather than later. Don't don't bring the Harrier in. Leave it out, <laughs> please. <laughs> Do us all a favor. <laughs> well, I already have I already have mechanics for it. So um, <laughs> rats. <laughs> yeah. Uh, no, it's you know that's that's kind of the funny thing is as you find out what people's favorite aircraft are and the and the ones that they really enjoy. Uh, yeah. I, I have found it interesting as I've worked through several rule sets uh, for you know India Pakistan Taiwan Straits and some of these other ones. Uh, it, it's just funny that the aircraft that people really 
become huge fans of. And it's like everybody talking about the fallen gnat for, uh, for India and India-Pakistan war. And to me, that airplane, I just... I never thought that much of it because I didn't know the history, to be honest. You know, you didn't realize what a valuable aircraft it was. I was much more of a MiG-21 kind of guy, you know, on the Indian side. Um, but uh, but I think it's interesting to just, just see how, how people will pick and choose the aircraft. Because it sounds to me like there's going to be a lot of input um, in the early, you know, beta stage as to here's the aircraft we'd like to see or here's here's where we'd like to see you model um, either a little bit more realism or gener- or generalize some things. Uh, it sounds like you're going to be fairly responsive uh, for a lot of that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I see it as, you know, I've had sort of the core idea that's the genesis of this thing, but actually where it ends up, the path that sort of goes down and how it grows, um, there's definitely a huge area for community involvement there in terms of what people are, are enjoying playing and what they want to play. I mean, I didn't initially thought that I'd start with sort of the Vietnam setting, um, but what happened is when I was designing the game and I started then looking at historical... Um, dogfighting sort of accounts of the aircraft and that's where the Vietnam War had quite some good um, descriptions of matchups between for instance F-4s and um, MiG-21s and um, MiG-17s and MiG-19s and it sort of gave me a much better ability to model the game and refine how the game played to try and really get that feel a bit better and that's where I sort of ended up shifting my focus there initially to help get the mechanics nailed down based on sort of that historical, um, yeah. Well, well, the good thing is you, if you start with the Vietnam era aircraft, those aircraft see each other in different theaters around the world, you know, multiple times. So it gives you at least something that you've, you've, you've got a known point of departure. You've got these, you know, basic MIGs and basic U.S. aircraft. Now I can, I can play them in other theaters, change out weapons loads, change out targets and, and threats. Absolutely, and that was uh, the other the other idea behind it is that a lot of those aircraft, you know, have very long, in some cases, still in service, um, lifespans, and it was an opportunity to be like, well, if we start with these, we can revisit these, you know, rebring them in as supporting aircraft in other scenarios right. um, further down the track. Uh, so we've got a MiG twenty one very soon about to hit the Patreon. That's our next release coming up. Um, so we started with the F-4 and the MiG-19, and as I say, the MiG-21 is, is very close to, to dropping as well. So that should be some See, that, interesting that, that doesn't sound like fun, flying MiG-19s versus F-4s. I think I'll, there'd be a lot of dead F-4 players. <laughs> well, especially if you're playing uh, playing sort of early war where uh, right. they didn't have a cannon. Yeah, no them. guns. Yeah, um, yeah. And they had the, uh, the uh, AIM-4 um, yeah. Falcon. The Falcon um, 8. Another yeah. wonderful missile, not so much. Yeah, and that's why I gave it the salvo rule, that because they used to fire off more than one at a time just to try yeah. and increase the odds of hitting something. Yeah. Um, so, But then by sort of the, the second scenario in the beta book at the moment, or third scenario I think it is, is, is the late war where you have your sidewinders, you have your sparrows, right. um, but then the MiGs have got the Atoll missile now um, that makes them just that but more dangerous than before so the question That's is cool. if you've got as heavily if you've got a couple of heavily armed f4s can you deal with multiple mid, mid targets um before they get too close oh now, now you're getting me excited to go play this so yeah <laughs> out of twisted lords i'm gonna have to definitely have to at least get get one maybe two quick games in um about how long do games take normally so when you have let's say four aircraft aside uh, what have you seen in kind of your alpha testing? What should people expect for, for an evening of gaming? 
Well, I'd say for your first few games at least, you need to allow some time to actually work through and learn the mechanics, you know. So the first couple of games, you know, probably allow a couple of hours just in terms of actually understanding the mechanics and the steps. And because when you have aircraft actions, like you go, okay, I'm activating this aircraft, I move, I turn, and then I'm going to try and shoot your aircraft, your aircraft then gets a chance to react to try and dodge that attack. So having that back and forth reactions, it does take a little bit of time to understand those steps and processes. Right, right. But once you actually know the game, then you can play it quite quickly because you can be like, yep, I know I know how they move and turn easily. I'm familiar with the tools. We can chuck together a dice pool much more quickly because I'm not having to sit there and sort of calculate and look at the table and say, okay, well, if I'm making a gun's attack and this is the range and then what's the orientation of the target to give me a modifier to that and my pilot right. skill what did i start on again with my pilot skill for, <laughs> uh, for a wingman you know you sort of as you play more you get quicker good but good. yeah that uh, that sounds interesting so uh, i don't want to give too much of a uh, rules review because i haven't played it you know so it's one of those things that i i really want to uh, dig through it in the next couple of weeks and then definitely have you back on after a uh, I've put my hand on the burner and burned myself and figured out what I need to do different <laughs> and how not to play the game. Yeah. Um, but it, it really seems, seems exciting. And I'll, I'll be honest, I'm super excited to see uh, where it goes with the miniatures and the bases and, and really putting information in front of the players and not on lookup tables, you know, putting on aircraft cards, putting arcs on the bases, making it so the game can flow and you're not sitting there flipping, you know, into the, page 27 to find your your movement template for the speed you're at so i think yeah that's that's something that i've really tried to um to work hard on is, is make the game as easy as possible and so like even the back page of the rules manual how i've reproduced all of the reference tables from the manual onto that one page there's a copy of them and there is a one pager so if you're just like oh wait how much damage does a uh, sidewinder do again <laughs> it's there on the missile table so yeah you know it's it's all there easy to access yeah that that uh that helps me uh, more often than not and i've i've laughed at a couple games that don't do that and i realize that the table is stuck halfway through a text box somewhere in the rules and and yeah. it's nice to have that all kind of kind of wrapped yeah. up together i i wasn't a fan of having to put like post-it notes in your rules manual to yeah. be able to help you get back to certain <laughs> pages that you needed to refer to i'm just like that's too hard let's just make it easy let's that put as much relevant information on the pilot card as we can you know and it's sort of a bit of it maybe came from playing board games as well you know having a player dashboard where you can like you know worker placement games and that sort of stuff and going if we have a playing card and i can stick my countermeasures tokens on it i can stick my fuel tokens on it i can stick my missile tokens on it and when i use them i just take them off right you know, so right. that it's it's easy yeah, I, I I tend to enjoy seeing all that stuff on the card rather than following the fighter around on the on the board. I I would know I was playing um, uh, Red Storm, a hex encounter game that that's actually a, quite a fun game. But there's so many tokens and encounters to track your morale, your aircraft status, and those things that you end up with a single counter for a flight of aircraft with five or six other counters underneath it. You know, tracking all that status and that just gets that's in. To me, that's just too clunky, too kludgy to, to move that all around the board. I'd rather have individual fighters uh, and track stuff elsewhere. So that Yeah, uh, and, and that's where it sort of was a bit of a um, game design as to what do we put on the card versus what do we put on the table with the aircraft. And it's sort of like, what are things that your opponent needs to know and what are things that your opponent 
doesn't need to know or wouldn't know. So your opponent wouldn't know right. how much fuel you have. So your fuel tokens go on your card. They wouldn't really easily be able to count what missiles you have left, so that goes on your card. But they would know how you're maneuvering and whether you look like you're performing high G sort of maneuvers. So the G tokens go by the aircraft. They'd know whether you're at high or low altitude. So that goes by your aircraft. Right. You know. So it's sort of anything that um, makes a difference in terms of the tactical information that you would choose to target on should be on by the aircraft. So that's things like, are they using afterburners? Because then you can just be able to want to shoot them with a heat-seeking missile <laughs> or you know are they under high stress or are they at high altitude or do they have a radar lock on them but anything else that doesn't directly affect your tactical decision of who am i going to shoot um right. doesn't need to be on the table that's cool that's definitely cool well yeah I don't want to spoil everything too much. Uh, I will say it's funny. Uh, I, I keep jumping back on the Facebook page and seeing what uh, models and, and other things are out there. And it gets me more excited to go, ooh, I'm looking at aircraft more than just uh, a couple MiGs and a couple uh, F4s. There's ooh F14s that are in there, A4s. I'm like, darn it, this guy, this Matt guy, he's got it squared away. So uh, yeah. I'm really excited to see where, where the game's going to go and where, where the Patreon's going. So uh, let me tell the listeners real quick. It's obviously super easy to find you on Facebook. Because literally Cold War Combat, uh, facebook.com slash Cold War Combat. And then the same way uh, over on Patreon. So you're over on there, uh, patreon.com slash Cold War Combat. Um, so I would encourage everyone to go out there, take a look at uh, the both the pages, take a look at the game, take a look at the, uh, the game features that are out there publicly. Um, and definitely, I would say uh, everybody uh, back this back this for Matt, so we can uh, we can see how much work we can throw his way, so we can bury him underneath projects. <laughs> and and if I can, I, I do just want to do a quick shout out to all the guys who have backed so far and helped the game get to this point, because it's without their support, you know, getting it from being a uh, you know a design in my head to actually a product that now people all around the world are able to actually you know start enjoying and, and actually being able to play with um that's been an awesome thing to be able to deliver us and i couldn't have done it without those guys so thanks to everyone who's supported yeah that's good I, I'm, I'm glad that there are people that are willing to put uh put their money towards uh at least you know getting a, a good product out there and uh, and supporting you in, in the work because a lot of stuff in in war gaming and, and the gaming community is always a, a labor of love uh, and so we a lot of times laugh that uh, people forget it costs money to print things on 3D printers. It costs money to print off sample rule books and, and do some of the graphic design work. So I'm glad that uh, that everybody is definitely backing you on that. Um, well, before we sign off, anything you kind of want to tease uh, the people who haven't backed yet with things that they might want to know about the game or the game system to uh, to encourage them to go check it out? Well, I mean, I think it's just a load of fun, the game. Um you know, it's it's it literally is a case of, you know, your beer and pretzels. You know, being able to shoot shoot your best mates. You know, shoot them down, um, <laughs> laugh about it. You know, um, it's it's just a really fun mechanic. Um, and if you've got people who you love to play war games with, but maybe they're not massive aviation fans, you know, and uh, it's a case of well, if they like the idea but don't want to get bogged down in the details, this is this is the game for them. You know, it's got a, a really easy mechanics to get them started. And then when you've got them hooked, then you can start telling them about the, the more advanced stuff. <laughs> so, um, and there's there's a lot more planes coming. Um, as I've said to the guys on, on Patreon, if you have particular aircraft that you're really passionate about, I'm more than happy to 
look at pushing those aircraft a bit earlier, it just means that maybe not all of their loadouts or mechanics might feature at this point. If it's, you know, if you say, hey, I really want F-16s, it's like, <laughs> well, I can, I can give you an F-16 for an ACM role, um, right. but you're going to have to wait for the the ground strike expansion to get all of the the fun toys that are going to go with it exactly you know yeah. on on top of that so um like you said you've seen pictures of your 14s yes i have your 14s i have a plane card for them they are you know functional uh the question is just you know at what point do we uh put the amount for people to be able to play with you know um and and what demand there is for different aircraft so if you want Absolutely. a 14s faster then come and join the community and <laughs> Yeah, this this is definitely something we're gonna we're gonna jump in and and get on the site with you and back it because it's uh it's gonna be fun and and I always enjoy just going out and picking up games and and understanding how the designers you know, fought through the compromises they had to and and because it helps me sometimes coalesce in my own mind you know am I making a game too simple or too complex and as you and I talked before the show you know me doing some similar things with 1980s. Um, European Cold War combat, you know, uh, RAF F4s versus uh, East German MiGs. It's kind of funny that that I have to sit there and I have to look at how how do I solve some of these same problems so you don't just recreate a super complex game that everybody else didn't really enjoy when somebody else produced it, you know. So I think you've yeah. done a good job with that. And awesome. I appreciate you sharing the rules with me uh, so I could get a look at that and, and get a kind of an early preview. And now I have to play through it and uh, and drag a few more friends in to support you and to support the game. Yeah, absolutely. And I'd love to hear your feedback and, and any questions or stuff you got. So, Oh, there'll be a lot of questions, I'm sure. A lot of dumb questions. <laughs> so well, try not to laugh too hard when I ask them. <laughs> no, just an opportunity for me to clarify the rule book a little bit more. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Maybe I'll put a section in. Doug's questions. Yeah, Doug. Doug's dumb questions. <laughs> you give me a guess. Hopefully, a guess hopefully none of you will ask these, so don't bother reading this section. Uh, well, awesome, Matt. Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for taking some time to talk through uh, through your project, through all the stages of Cold War combat, not just the ACM uh, project that we're talking about right now. And I really look forward to following that and supporting it and backing it uh, and seeing where it goes from here. So thank you very much. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. All right. For everybody else, please go out on iTunes and go ahead and drop us a review out there. Uh, whatever podcast software you use, please like and review us out there. And if you have questions, if you can't find Cold War Combat ACM out there on the Internet, shoot us a line over on our website or on social media. and We'll point you out in the right direction uh, so you can go over there and check out the project. Thank you, everyone, for listening. We'll talk again next week.